Okay, her, her in-laws and her grandparent in-laws. Okay, good. Well, then several people heard me mispronounce their name. It's <laughs> <laughs> even worse. All right, welcome. Uh, so she is registered at Targets and Bye Bye Baby, and it's a boy. So uh, that's exciting. Is there a name that's being shared? There's not. There's not. All right. Secret. All right. Okay, all right. I'm over two now. Uh, Enneagram, Enneagram conference hosted by Susan, Suzanne Stabile, and Ian Crone. Crone, however you say his name, is next weekend. Uh, that's interesting. If you haven't done that before, uh, register online at tinyurl.com. You're not <laughs> so you can find it, I'm sure, on the website. Um, does anyone know if this is going to be different than the previous one? Anyone know? No. Newer, more recent. Mostly, more recent. mostly the same, a little different. Okay, mostly. Or, the same, a I don't know. <laughs> some different, some different. I don't know. I won't say a little. Some different. So it could be a they changed the numbers around. <laughs> 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 it goes to eleven <laughs> now. Spinal Tap reference. Shots, brother-in-law of Vanessa Ewing, prays for healing, is now in remission from cancer. The family appreciates your prayers, and uh, yeah, it's a good, good day today. Praise for new babies, Rowan Olivia Waddell, born March 20th to John and Ellen. Seven I think those grandparents are in here, too. Really? They are. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Congrats. Very exciting. Um, anything else we need to be aware of? All right, we'll pray, and then Give it over to George. Uh, Father, thank you for, for good news, for healing, for uh, new babies. Um, we, we know you are good. You bless us and you take care of us. Uh, we also know that there are people who are still uh, dealing with difficult things, and we ask that you're with them, bringing them peace and healing and comfort. Uh, we ask that you give us um, ears to hear and open hearts uh, so that we might be uh, shaped uh, as we study Romans 8 today. Amen. Thank you for being here. So uh, very I'm glad to be back myself, back home. Uh, Romans chapter eight. So I think Romans chapter eight would definitely be on Paul's greatest hits <laughs> CD. If he had a greatest hits CD, uh, so some good stuff in here. Uh, so we're going to try to cover as much as we can. Um, I just want to um, set, it, set this up with a, a little bit of an um, outline. So we've talked in, in Romans about how our redemption is a Messiah-shaped redemption. So I think Romans is a lot about how God has used uh, the Jewish nation and the prophecies to Israel and the, the promise to Abraham to bless all nations. Um, and so Paul is working through showing how God has worked through all of that. We get that in Romans 9 through 11 as well. So this redemption is always going to be through and in the Messiah, who is Jesus. And I think that makes a lot of sense about what he's going to say in Romans chapter 8 about uh, foreknowledge. It, this is God's plan from, from the very beginning of time. This was God's plan. So that's predestination or foreordination, being called, being justified, being glorified. All those things are true of the Messiah, 
And because they are true of the Messiah, they are true of those who believe in the Messiah and are part of God's family. So uh, I think one of the issues that we've run into several times in Romans is that we tend to read things very individualistically about our own uh, individual lives and our own personal salvation, where I think a lot of times Paul is talking more about God's plan for the world and how we can be part of that. So I think it's going to help us when we come to that passage in Romans chapter 8 to think about because those things were true of Jesus, those are also true of those who are in Jesus. Um, and then also it's a cross-shaped redemption. So what he says about suffering in Romans chapter 8, there's, there's something about the cross and suffering that, that, is God's, that was God's way of, of accomplishing his purpose for the world. And so it's also going to be part of our purpose, uh, of our role in the world. Um, so all those things, I think, are going to help us with Romans chapter 8. Um, these three words, raise your hand if you're familiar with these three words, three theological terms. So a lot of us, a lot of us are. Um, so justification would refer to, uh, it's kind of a court term when you are pronounced not guilty. Now, I think um, I'm going to... Made right, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a very negative kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Except when he's talking about your teaching. <laughs> <laughs> For Hilton, I'm going to put made right up there too. And I think, and I'm going to, I'm summarizing some of uh, Tom Wright's or N.T. Wright's uh, teaching on this uh, because it's influenced me and I, I think it, it, it's right uh, but anyway um, if you, so that now you don't have to read Tom Wright you can just listen to me and I'll explain it to you but um, this this is uh, the final judgment it's a final judgment uh, event is when at the final judgment uh, we are found not guilty we are made right uh, in God's eyes um, now, we, we are justified now through our faith in Christ. And our faith in Christ is what is going to make us be pronounced not guilty in the final judgment. Uh, so, because Christ is the one who went to the cross, and we're going to talk about in the first few verses of Romans chapter 8, uh, took on the sin of Israel and also the world and so through our faith in Christ and what he did on the cross um, we can be pronounced not guilty at the final judgment now we are not guilty now in the sense that that proclamation that decision is retroactively applied to us in the present time based on our faith in Christ uh, but what Wright says, N.T. Wright says, is what Romans 8 shows is that through the Spirit, our life will complete, we will fulfill the law, the purpose of the law of God in our life through the work of the Spirit. Um, let's go through these others and I'm going to come back to that. But uh, sanctification, 
I think of the Spirit with this. So this is the work of the Spirit. Um, we all know that there is still sin in our lives, but through the work of the Spirit, we are being sanctified. That's um, from the word for to be made holy or to be set apart. So it has to do with holiness. And the idea here is that you can have growth in sanctification. Justification seems more like uh, you're either guilty or not guilty, but sanctification, there can be, you can be more or less sanctified. Right? And then, again, in a very positive way, you're set apart for a purpose. That's right. That's good. Um, I like that as well. I'm going to put everything Hilton says on the board. Um, And just to summarize that, it's to glorify God. That's why we are created. Um, and to glorify God, we become God's um, image in the world. And so this idea of the Spirit and the idea of our bodies being a temple of the Holy Spirit is that we become uh, the image of God in the world. So the thing about a temple is that ancient temples always had an image of the God in the Holy of Holies or whatever the inner sanctum was. So what Paul is saying is that, kind of drawing on the whole narrative of Scripture, is that we, uh, we were created to be God's image, reflecting God into the world and reflecting the praise of the world to God. So we are like the priests um, who, are, who have a purpose. I like that. And then glorification is the final, um, I'm going to say final state, uh, where uh, there's a sense in which we have begun our process of sanctification, but there's still another step to that. It's not over yet. And we hope for a final redemption that includes both us and God's creation. So there's a final state of glorification that is, that is still future. So justification, sanctification, glorification, those are those terms. Now, what N.T. Wright says that's different from what uh, a lot of uh, what I've heard before is this justification not being final until the last judgment. So the way to put it most starkly is when you ask, what is the basis of our final being proclaimed not guilty? The typical Protestant answer has been through our faith, our faith in Christ. But as we've noticed places in Romans chapter 2, other places in Scripture, what is the basis of your final judgment? It's what have you done? What are your works, your deeds? So there is no judgment scene in Scripture where you are asked, do you have faith or not? The final judgment scene is always, have you, like in Matthew 25, is it have you served the poor, visited prisons, all these things? What have you done? So Tom Wright says that the basis of our final judgment is the life you have lived. Now that's, that's scary because we're like, wait a minute, I don't want to be judged on my life. I don't want to be judged on my faith. But 
Romans 8 is going to say that through the Spirit, everyone who has faith and has the Spirit, their life will be conformed to the image of God's Son. So I, you know, it kind of is a shock to us, I think, in, in our normal Protestant way of thinking of, wait a minute, I thought, I thought it was just my faith. But the, the downside of that is we think, well, my life then, you know, I can, I can let some things slide because it's really just my faith that matters. Uh, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. So we're just as bad as everybody else, but we get forgiven of our sins because we believe in Jesus. And I think what Romans 8 is going to say is, no, if, if you have the Spirit, your life will look different. And it will be different. It doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not saying perfection. Uh, but you will be fulfilling God's purpose in your life of imaging God into the world. You don't have to do it perfectly, but we have a purpose to play and we'll be fulfilling that purpose through the work of the Spirit. Any questions that that brings up or something you want clarified before we get into the actual text? Okay, just keep holding on to your questions then. We'll we'll see if you have something to say later. Let's start reading Romans chapter 8. What we're going to do is we're going to read 1 to 11, and then we're going to skip to the end. Josh, do you have anything you want to add at this point? Maybe from Philippians 2, I think it's 11 and 12 or 12 and 13, where I think it's 12 and 13, where he says, uh, work out or live out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Uh, you get this sense that there's kind of, you're expected to do something, but God is, is at work within you at the same time. And so uh, Romans is maybe getting at a similar point. This isn't a sit back and you just totally rely on the cross, but you, you do this kind of, of um, you, you live out a spirit-led lifestyle trusting that God is helping you to live that way with confidence that as he enables you to live that way, your life will be the kind of life uh, that is prepared um, for heaven, prepared for judgment. Uh, not because it's been lived perfectly, uh, but because God is going to make you, uh, he's going to en- empower you uh, to be ready at that time. So it doesn't take yeah. away confidence, uh, but it just shows that, that you're in this kind of continuing process yeah. with God. I really like that verse. Uh, somebody, somebody turn to that and read it out loud, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So, on, in verse 12, work out your own salvation. Uh, my background in Churches of Christ, we like this part. Yeah, work out your own salvation. Work that out. You've got you stuff you've got to do. Um, and this work out sounds like you're working out a math problem. And that's not, I think it's more of let your salvation work itself out into your life. Um, so, there's a lot of human action in, the, in verse 12. And then verse 13 says, for God is at work 
both to will and to work. So who's, who's doing it? Is God doing it or are we doing it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. And this is, I, I don't like that. I mean, I, I'm, I, I like to know what's my part, what's God's part. But um, the way Paul writes about it, you cannot tell the difference between what you do and what God does. And it's some sort of mysterious mix of both of those things. Paul says in one place, you know, I worked harder than everybody else. Uh, but it wasn't me, it was God working through me. So which is it, Paul? Are you working harder or is, is it God doing it? And he says yes. So that, it's a false dichotomy to ask, is it us or is it God? It has to be both. Yeah, very good. Okay, let's look at Romans chapter 8. Um, we're going to read 1, 2, 11, and then we're going to skip to the end, and then we'll come back to the middle. Uh, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's that Messiah-shaped redemption. Because through Messiah Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Romans chapter 7, he had talked about his experience of wanting to do what is right, but not being able to do it. And the law kind of shines a spotlight on sin and makes sin appear to be even worse. And it actually shows sin to be the one that's making him do these things. But now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, and I'm reading the NIV, but I'm changing sinful nature to flesh. Um, I just I want to keep it flesh. So, um, um, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of flesh to be a sin offering. Your translation there might say for sin. Uh, literally in Greek, it's, it's, it's for sin. There's no word for offering there technically. But in the Septuagint, um, when it talks about the sin offering in Leviticus, that's, it's the same Greek phrase, for sin. So that's why some translators feel like we can appropriately put for a sin offering here. And so he condemned, did he condemn Jesus? He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. And that may be an important distinction to make. Um, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful na- according to the flesh but according to the spirit so this is paul's concise atonement theology and i think it is substitutionary it's that christ came in the flesh to represent humanity and to take our humanity and take on the consequences of sin. Consequences of sin is death. And so Jesus takes on those consequences um, on our behalf. Um, and it also, it's, um, it's judicial. So he condemned sin uh, in the flesh. And I think that's, that Messiah-shaped redemption is important here because uh, we'll, we'll see this in Romans chapter 9 as well, but you have the sins of, you know, you have Adam and Eve created, then they sin, 
and everybody sins. This is in Romans 1. Um, God calls Abraham and says, I will use Abraham to bless the whole world. Um, and so then we have some children of Abraham who are chosen. Um, and then Isaac and Jacob, Jacob is chosen. And so it keeps getting narrowed down. So it's, it's the sins of the whole world. Then it's Israel who's given the law. And the purpose of the law, it seems like, is to show, hey, sin is really bad. Um, and so it gets narrowed down to Israel. But there's this promise of a remnant within Israel. And then there's a promise of a Messiah. So we're, we're narrowing it down. The sins of the world are now getting narrowed down to on the Messiah. And then Isaiah chapter 53, there's this uh, figure called the suffering servant. Um, somebody look at Isaiah 53 verse 5. Well, let's all look at Isaiah 53 verse 5. I'll read it for us. Paul has a lot of echoes of Isaiah uh, in Romans, and I think especially Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Um, Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, in the context of Isaiah, now we read this as Christians, we're like, oh yeah, that's talking about Jesus. But... Um, in its own Jewish context, the suffering servant is representing the nation of Israel. Um, as a representative of Israel, the suffering servant takes on the sins and bears the punishment that was due the whole nation for their idolatry. And Paul is saying that uh, in the cross, so we have, you know, why did Jesus die on a Roman cross? Part of that is because, you know, he had King of the Jews was written at the top of the cross. And the gospel writers make a big deal about, you know, the Jews wanted that changed. And what I have written, I have written. Uh, the King of the Jews. A king represents the people. Uh, we, we're not used to that because we have a president. Uh, we, we revolted from the king. Um, but in a more... When you had, in the old days, a king, the king represented the people. So the king of the Jews is representing the Jews taking on the punishment of exile, of suffering, of death that was due Israel for their idolatry. And because of that, he's bringing about a, a renewal of God's covenant that is now going to include the Spirit. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from that law that brought sin and death. Okay, so that's uh, Romans 8, 1 to 4 is tightly packed um, atonement theology. Uh, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind controlled by the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Uh, the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the, sin by the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. 
But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So, there's a flesh-spirit dichotomy, but it's not that the flesh is inherently bad. It's not a Gnostic idea or a Platonic Greek idea where the spirit, our spirits are what's really important and are, they're just kind of housed in the body. And wouldn't it be nice when we don't have a body anymore and we can just be spirits? Uh, that's not what Paul's talking about because he talks about a resurrection. And in the Greek Platonic sense, they didn't want a resurrection. Why would you want a body? You want to be free from your body. And I think sometimes in church we are so influenced by that Greek idea, we really downplay the importance of the body and um, we think being spiritual just means uh, praying and reading your Bible. Um, and it's not as bodily as it, as it probably should be. Uh, and what we're going to see in Romans 8 is that the hope of glorification is not just for our souls to be saved and go to heaven. It's for the whole of creation to be redeemed. So a very physical uh, glorified state that includes a resurrected body. Um, and I think for a long time the church has just emphasized the soul and downplayed the body with uh, some unfortunate consequences. So on um, last Sunday we talked about how Paul has been drawing a contrast between kind of Adam humanity and Jesus humanity. So you have those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus. Am I getting, stepping on your toes? Or you no, you're okay. good. Yeah. So we see a similar thing seeming to happen here in, in 8. The, the flesh versus spirit is not material versus immaterial. It's Adam humanity versus capital S spirit humanity. So it's not, the problem with the flesh is not that it's material. It's that it's only Adam humanity and that kind of fallen, broken humanity. So we want spirit humanity. That is not immaterial, but it is our material bodies uh, with the Spirit of God shaping us and helping us be what yeah. we couldn't be when we were only Adam. And we still have physical death. Um, and in some ways, separation from God. Um, but we're also going to have a resurrection as a hope uh, if you have the Spirit. Um, yeah. Uh, let's go to chapter uh, 8, verse 31. I want to skip to that part just to see where Paul ends up, and then we'll go back and look in the middle. Um, again, some of Paul's greatest hits here. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how we would not also along with him graciously give us all things? So if he's begun this good work in us, he will pronounce us not guilty at the final judgment as well. There's no need to be insecure about that. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. He makes up a word there. We're not just conquerors, we're hyper-conquerors. We're 
more than conquerors through him who loved us. Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah. Hyper Nike. Nike is uh, Nike for victory and then hyper on top of that. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, um, you could have a different word there, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even if you hold to this idea that our ultimate final judgment is going to be based on the life that we live, that's not a reason to be fearful or to be insecure because we trust that God is the one who is at work within us both to will and to work and so as long as we're in the family of God as long as um, we don't we're not perfect and um, I think we can have some discussion about what about people that we know who seem to have left uh, their faith uh, what does that say about security but I, I think we can say that as long as you are willing, and I think there has to be uh, some response on the human side. It's not just all God doing it. There has to be response on our side. But if there's response on the human side, God will, if he gave us Jesus even while we were enemies, even while we were separated, surely he will bring us through and make us right in the end. So, yeah, your life's not perfect. There's sin. You should be concerned in some ways about that. Cause you, not because you're afraid of going to hell, but because you want, you want to fulfill God's purpose in your life. And sin takes you away from that purpose. It's giving strength to idols that are not God. And so we don't want to give them the power. We want to give God the power and the glory. So we want our lives to be transformed and sanctified by the Spirit to grow in holiness. Uh, but it's not because we're afraid that we're not going to make it at the end. There's a lot of security here that what, the, as he says elsewhere in Philippians, the work that God began in you, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. So nothing can separate you from the love of God. Um, I do want to leave room for if you choose not to participate, then, then he's not going to force you. Uh, but God will do everything except force you to do it. Comments on that? Thoughts? Is that how you were raised? To think about your Christian life? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was kind of this weird, like, you do right because you don't want to lose heaven mm-hmm. instead of you want to do right because you're called to, for this purpose. Of, you know, it's just that, yeah. that one little switch yeah. that I think changes everything. The fear instead of yeah. the glorifying. 
I think the heaven when you die part, instead of the new heavens and new earth and uh, all creation being redeemed in a resurrected body and somehow having something to do uh, after death, it, it does make it more of a, an arbitrary end goal that you know God's disappointed in you um, and you may not make the final end goal. Yeah. Good. Okay, let's go back and pick up the middle part here. Um, We'll read through starting at verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, literally, the deeds of the body, you will live. My NIV says misdeeds because they're wanting to take out the confusion that it's just you don't have to do anything. You're not putting to death just the deeds of the body, but um, he's talking about the flesh here and its corruptibility and its still uh, proneness to death and sin and that type of thing. But by the Spirit, we put to death, we grow in holiness. Uh, the deeds of the, the misdeeds of the body you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, rather the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So this is where it's a cross-shaped redemption. So that redemption was brought about through suffering and somehow mysteriously suffering is part of the fabric of God's redemptive purpose for the world. So he's going to go on to talk about the suffering. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So this final state of being of receiving the glory that God has in store doesn't include just humans, but the whole creation that God made for us that from the very beginning our place is to take care of the garden and to be God's representatives in the world. Um, and so the final state, creation is, is waiting, uh, and God, God has subjected it to the curse just as um, he subjected uh, people to a curse for idolatry. But he's not going to change the plan. So the plan is still, like he doesn't change the plan for Israel, even though Israel was unfaithful. He's still going to work through Israel, through the Messiah. And he's not going to change the plan uh, for humans to be the ones who reflect his nature in creation. So all creation is, is still under a curse, but waiting for us to be revealed in glory and us to take on that proper role. Uh, when we talk about what's it going to be like after the Jesus comes again and we reach the final glorification state, there's no real specifics uh, I think we still have stuff to do though I was kind of hoping it's just we sit around on a cloud and sing songs and play harps and things but I think 
Maybe we were created to do more than that. Some sort of restorative things still going on. Maybe we can have some discussion on that. Josh may have some good insights on that. I think the raspberries will all be, always be ripe. Oh, good, good. So there'll still be fruit growing that needs yeah, can be gathered. But it'll be ripe, beautiful raspberries. And we'll enjoy picking them. Yeah. It won't be a lot of no chiggers. No chiggers. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll taste so good. That's one good thing. There'll still be food in the in the new heavens and new earth. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> And uh, calories, is that a problem? Not a problem. Um, okay. Uh, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what they have already have, but if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So the, the purpose of the church, of the family of God, is to be God's representative in the world. So we, we know that there's still pain, there's still suffering, and we, through prayer, he's going to say, we reflect that suffering to God. And our purpose is to be part of that suffering in a redemptive as a redemptive presence in the world's suffering Uh, verse 26 in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans and he who searches our hearts that's uh, a name for God God is a searcher of hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God so God is searching hearts for the Spirit, and the Spirit is interpreting the groans of the world, the groans of the believer, into um, words that, that God can understand. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Famous verse, uh, Romans eight twenty eight. Lots of different ways it can be translated. One thing I ran across just a few days ago that I've never heard before, so this is fresh off the press. So um, it's always translated in my memory, we know that all things work together for good, or you can also translate it, God works all things together for good for those who love him. That's a dative phrase in Greek, but another way that can be translated is by means of those who love him wow wouldn't that be so we are the agents of it kind of fits in with the spirit uh, interpreting our groans and things like that so we are the means of, of fulfilling this purpose that God has in the world to bring about the good so you know it's not everything that happens is good and this verse doesn't say everything that happens is good it says that God is able to work things for good. And it may not be for your good. Um, it may be for the good of somebody else. Um, so there's a lot of things we can plumb the depths of there. For the, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
So I think those are all past tense because they're so sure that they're going to happen and also because they happened to the Messiah. And because they happened to the Messiah, they are going to happen for those who are in the Messiah. So when we talk about predestination, in my mind, the way Paul talks about it here, it's a, it's a corporate, it's, it refers to those who are in the Messiah. Uh, I know a lot of times it's thought in a more individualistic sense. Uh, you have the Calvinist view that there are individuals who are chosen. To me, in Romans, it makes more sense that it's, it's a group. It's the people who have faith in Messiah that are chosen and predestined to be glorified. This is going to come up in Romans chapter 9 as well. Uh, so Josh is going to be able to explain all our questions about predestination. Um, I, think, I think two things to think about. Number one, is it corporate or is it individual? I think the corporate makes more sense. I've even read some Reformed or Calvinist interpreters who think in Romans it's more corporate. They, they would go to other places to talk about it being individual. And then, what are we predestined for? And the more we take it away from just going to heaven when you die, and we're, instead we're predestined to be part of God's plan for the world, I mean, that was kind of Israel's problem. They, they're the chosen people, but they started just reflecting that to themselves and being the guards about who's in and who's out. And, and Paul gives them a lot of criticism for that in Romans 9 to 11. And I think we can experience the same thing if we think of being chosen as meaning, okay, we're, we're the chosen ones, uh, sorry for everybody else, instead of seeing ourselves as being chosen for the sake of serving and being God's presence in the world, uh, reflecting the sufferings in the world to God. So number one, is it individual or is it corporate? And number two, what are you chosen for? What are you chosen to do? And it's more of a role than it is uh, chosen to be saved in the sense of a spirit, soul, heaven, eternity. Josh, what do you want to add to all that? Uh, I, I guess we'll get into it more in chapter 9, but I think you're right. You pick it up at verse 29. We're predestined to be conformed to the image, so it has that purpose. What's the goal? Uh, and you get the same similar language in Ephesians 1, which sounds like predestination language. You have both in verse 4 and verse 11. We are chosen in him, in him. So the yeah. idea is something like he's chosen the people, the people who are willing to be in Christ. Uh, so it's not he's picking this person, this person, not that person, that person, but it's he's chosen Christ and those who are willing to be in him. Uh, it's maybe yeah. a way to get that corporate idea. Makes sense to me, and that's what I was going to say about Ephesians, so it must be right. Great minds think alike. All right, thank you very much for being here. We're a few minutes over, but thanks a lot for your participation and attendance today.